We are currently in a series through the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles with you today, you want to turn to John chapter 2. We're going to be there in just a moment. Uh, we're calling um, today's message, The Day That God Cleaned House. Anybody need somebody to come and clean their house? We're going to talk about that today. But first, I want you to imagine a basketball game. It's almost the end of overtime. There's just time for one last shot. Who do you want to have the ball? Well, you want the calmest, the best player out there, right? Or imagine that the, the security of the nation is threatened. The threat levels have gone through the roof. An attack is imminent. Who do you want to have the nuclear codes? Who do you want making the final call on what to do or not to do? You want somebody who's calm, under pressure. Or here's one more example. Let's say that you need a crucial surgery to save your life or the life of a loved one. Who do you want behind the scalpel? Who do you want performing the surgery? Of course, you want the best doctor available, right? Well, that's how the Gospels present Jesus. He faces ongoing scrutiny. Scrutiny from the religious leaders, the movers and shakers of his day. And then crowds of people are constantly coming to him, demanding his time, his resources, his help. He is regularly approached by the neediest and the most broken people in his culture. And then his own disciples, those closest to him, they, they doubt or disappoint him regularly. And then some of his own family believe that he's just a bit crazy. He is under extreme pressure as he moves ever closer to the cross, to his death. A pressure that we could never even imagine or fathom. And yet, at every stage, Jesus is calm. He's in control of his, of his self, of his life, of his world. But Jesus also leaves all of those sports stars and politicians and surgeons far behind. It's not just that Jesus is in control of himself. He's in control of the events themselves, isn't he? And it's not just that he's able to handle his own adrenaline, but he's able to dictate the results. And it's not that he's just able to act wisely under pressure. He is able to determine the outcome. Jesus isn't, isn't able just to respond skillfully to what he finds. He already knows what he will find. And he's already mapped out the solution to the deepest of human problems of all. The problem of sin. And Jesus stands out because he is in control. Control of the entire sweep of human history. Even as he moves ever closer to his own impending death. As I mentioned, we're working our way through this Gospel of John. That's John's account of the events that take place around Jesus in the last three years of the Lord's life. Last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 2 where Jesus performed his first public sign at a wedding feast, turning the water to wine. And in verse 11, we read this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. 
And so we called that first sign last week, we called it Jesus' world premiere, as he made clear that he's in charge by revealing his own glory and his power to create. We said last week that a sign is something that conveys information, information that we're expected to act upon. We get to decide how we will proceed when we see the sign. Signs warn us of things. They point to things. They give directions. And that's what the signs of Jesus are. And that's what they will be doing as we work our way through the Gospel of John. They're pointing to something or, even more importantly, to someone. They're directing us to the reality that Jesus indeed is God's Son, the Messiah, the one who calls for decision and action on our part. Well, today... We're going to move on from the first sign, which, while done in a public setting, a wedding feast, was really only recognized by a, a few people closest to him, his disciples and a few servants there at that wedding. But in this next section that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus takes some action that is very public. It's seen by hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. And so we're going to begin in John chapter 2 beginning in verse 13. The words are going to be on the screen. I want to invite you to read this section of the gospel narrative with me. So let's read together, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Amen. The word of God. So, as we enter into this section, uh, I want you to think a little bit just about maybe when you were a parent or when you were a kid. How many of you remember this famous statement? Maybe you made it as a parent. Maybe you heard it as a kid. It's time for some discipline. And somebody says, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Now, as kids, we probably never believed that, did we? Probably didn't believe it until you had kids of your own. And then you understood that disciplining your kids hurts. And it, it is hard. But if you don't do it, then you'll destroy them. Because kids need discipline and they need guidance. They need to, to learn in a, a loving environment where the boundaries are defined instead of just being allowed to live however they please. Because there are boundaries in this world, aren't they? 
So our English word discipline comes from a, a Latin root word which means to learn or get to know. So discipline refers to the process by which one learns a particular way of life. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing in this encounter in the temple of Jerusalem. So following that, that wedding in Cana, where Jesus had performed his very first sign, Jesus then traveled with his family and his disciples down to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a seaside town, and it would become a kind of a home base for Jesus during his ministry in the Galilee region for the next several years. And they stayed there for a few days, and then they headed to Jerusalem. It was the time of the Passover, which meant that Jews who were faithful headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the most important feast of Judaism. And so Jesus went. And when he got there, things were not as they should be. And Jesus saw the need for some well-timed discipline. Now, some of you might recall that in the Old Testament, God required the ancient Jews to celebrate the Passover as a consistent way to remind themselves of how God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And so it became a regular feast and meal that they observed, similar to what we did today with the Lord's Supper as we remember what Jesus has done for us. And so the feast was for the Jews to be observed annually. And if possible, faithful Hebrews were to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple to celebrate the Passover feast. So this is why Jesus and his family were there. Now I want you just to imagine for a moment with me what they saw, what Jesus saw when he got there. Now, by the first century, the time of Jesus, the, the Jewish people had greatly multiplied. And so hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people would annually travel, make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was kind of like a, a national convention or like the Olympics came to town. And all of that tension, attention and the size of the crowd meant one thing, money. Money, right? The economic impact of hundreds of thousands of people descending on a city was huge. And so when the time of the Passover arrived, the merchants made a lot of money. They knew how to market to the needs of the people. You see, they knew exactly where all those people were headed, didn't they? Real estate people will tell you that there are three things that are important when buying, right? What is it? Location, location, location. Location is everything. And so these merchants set up shop where the people were going to be, right there in the temple courts. The temple courts were huge. This was a 19-acre area around the temple proper. And these courtyards were extremely large, including the largest of the, the courtyards, the, the courtyard of the Gentiles, where all of this exchange and, and business was taking place. And so when Jesus arrived into the holy temple, where worship was to be placed, what did he find? But that it had been turned into a, basically a flea market. But worse than that was what they were selling. They were selling religion. Most of the people who came to Jerusalem for Passover had traveled a very long distance. 
Travel was already tough. But imagine trying to, to travel when you've got to bring animals for your sacrifice. That would be very difficult, maybe even almost impossible. And so depending on what type of offering you were making, the priest would decide what type of animal that you needed. It could be a, 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 a bull or an ox or a, a dove of some sort. And of course, for Passover, every family was required to have a lamb. And so it would be a great burden to bring them all along. And even if you did decide to bring some of your own animals, they had to be perfect without any spot or blemish. And you weren't the one that got to decide that. The priest was. And so I imagine that many, if they did bring their own animals, would have had those animals rejected by the priest. You see, the religious leaders were in on this whole profit-making scheme. And so they, of course, would reject the people's sacrifices because the animals they brought would never likely pass inspection. And so you had to purchase one. And guess what? Conveniently, pre-approved animals were available right on the spot. 1995, right here. The leadership had a monopoly going. And anytime there's a monopoly, there's likely greed involved. People taking advantage of others. They charged exorbitant prices and then right there, of course, were the money changers because you couldn't buy those animals with the money from whatever land you came from. You had to have a particular coinage. And so the money changers were there to make a profit on that exchange as well. And so it was a terrible time to come and worship. It was difficult. It made people not want to come to worship. It pushed people away from God rather than inviting them where they needed to be. And so as Jesus enters into this vast courtyard, several acres in size, what does he see but cattle and sheep and birds everywhere? And think about what goes with animals. Stink, stench, loud noises. What a terrible situation for somebody to come and worship in. And the leaders don't care about the people. All of this is taking place as Jesus enters into the temple area. And it's here that we get this different picture of Jesus. Not the picture that many people hold on to. Gentle Jesus. Meek and mild. Quiet. This is a different Jesus. The Jesus who worked in the carpenter's shop, who worked manual labor with his father. This is a man who is healthy and strong. And he storms in. And he basically destroys the place, doesn't he? Animals, people, money flying everywhere. He even fashions a whip. And he begins to drive people and animals out of the courtyard. He turns the tables over. Money goes flying. His voice rings through the halls of the temple yard. This is not a swap meet. This is not a marketplace. This is God's house. This is a house of prayer. And so Jesus cleans house that day, doesn't he? And it's not easy. In fact, there's some pain involved. But when things got to this point... He had no choice because it is time for discipline. And he does it because he loves us. And like a parent might say to their kid, 
this is harder for me than it is for you. Listen to what God says in his word in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. My child, don't ignore it when the Lord disciplines you. And don't be discouraged when he corrects you, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes those he accepts as his children. And so let's face it, there are times when we need discipline. Is that right? We might need some correction. We might need a rebuke. Sometimes our temple has to be cleansed. Sometimes the house of the Holy Spirit, which is us, both corporately and individually, we need a cleaning up. But the question for us today is, how will we respond when the discipline happens? So I want to take a look at this encounter in ancient Jerusalem, and I want to apply it to our lives today as we consider how will we respond to the discipline of the Lord. And the first response that we want to consider this morning is that discipline can result in remembering. Discipline can result in remembering. And here's what I mean. In this encounter that we read, the disciples were not the ones being disciplined, were they? They were simply onlookers watching their rabbi as he kind of goes crazy. What is going on? But certainly this event left an impression on them that they would not soon forget. They learned from what they saw because that's what a disciple is, a learning, doing follower. These were Jesus' disciples, and they learned from what they saw. This cleansing of the temple caused them also to remember. Remember what they previously had learned from God's word. In verse 17, we read, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote out of Psalm 69. Those are the words of King David, written some 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. And the Jewish people knew that it was a psalm looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They'd read it many times as they looked forward to the one who would come to deliver them. And so these simple, humble disciples of Jesus are quickly able to link this ancient psalm with this current startling event that's kind of blowing their mind as they watch their rabbi. They're able to connect those things together. And they're able to remember God's word. Why? Because they have spent time in God's word. That's so important. They'd read this passage in Psalm many, many times. And they remember God's word because they'd spent the time in God's word. And friends, when we face challenges, when we witness startling events, when our mind is kind of blown, when we're surrounded by the unknown or by fear or anxiety or doubt or confusion, then we must allow God's word to work in our life. We must allow these circumstances to push us to God's word. But the only way to remember God's word in those times is if we know it in the first place. 
Here's another little psalm, a snippet of Psalm 119, verse 11. David wrote this. He said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, we can't hide God's word in our heart if we don't know it, right? We can't store his truth in our heart if we don't study it. We can't keep God's wisdom in our heart if we don't meditate on it. If we haven't stored up God's word in our heart, then we will not have it when we need it most. When the circumstances don't make sense or things are going crazy. And when we need it, we really need it. And perhaps the time we'll need it most is when we are being disciplined. Discipline can result in remembering. But sometimes discipline can also bring a negative result. Instead of turning away from the things they're doing, the one being disciplined might choose simply to rebel. None of you ever did that with your parents, did you? So discipline can result, secondly, in demands. Demands in verse 18. Notice how differently the Jewish leaders reacted to Jesus as compared to the disciples. The disciples remembered what was written. They thought, oh, remember that? Psalm 69. And it brings it to their mind. But the Jews didn't. And these were the priests. These were the scholars, the leaders. They of all people should have been able to know scripture and connect it to events in front of them. But they didn't. They didn't. Instead, what do they do? They make demands. Basically, they say to Jesus, who do you think you are? What are you doing? What right do you have to come into the temple and create all this chaos? And so they make a demand. Give us a sign. Something to reveal or to point to your authority to come into this temple and create this mess. And as we continue through John's Gospels in the weeks to come, we're going to see that these very leaders never do. They never do learn the lesson Jesus was providing through discipline that day. On at least two other occasions, they will demand of Jesus to show them a sign. And how does Jesus answer them? He says, an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. Prove it. Prove it, Jesus. That doesn't happen today, does it? Yes, it does. Sure it does. Do we ever make demands of God? We might say something like, oh, Lord, get me out of this jam and I'll change my ways. For sure. Or Lord, just get me out of this trouble one more time and I'll really clean up my act. Lord, if you just answer this one prayer, I'll do whatever you ask. Or we might say, God, how dare how dare you allow this hardship into my life? I don't deserve this. And friends, these are demands. These are negotiations with our creator, bargains with our boss. When the Holy Spirit begins to turn over the tables of our life, when discipline comes our way, do we accept it? Or do we start making demands? Who do you think you are, God? This is me. When we get to chapter 5, we're going to see that these same Jewish leaders, they begin to plot to kill Jesus. 
They're so enraged by what he's doing. Enraged that he won't capitulate to their demands. And the tragic truth is that most of them were so hard-hearted towards Jesus that they refused to believe in him and they never changed their ways. And so when discipline comes into our life, we can remember God's word, we can remember his promises, or we can rebel. And we can demand, we can shake a fist at God. Which will we choose? Well, this leads us to a third response or result to discipline from the Lord. And that is that sometimes discipline can result in skepticism. Skepticism. Instead of giving them the sign that they so arrogantly demanded, Jesus simply answers a question. In verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now they didn't understand his answer, did they? His disciples didn't understand it either. They were all mixed up. They assumed he was talking about this very building and complex, this gleaming temple. They said, we, we spent four plus decades building this place and you're going to raise it up in three days? But we know that Jesus was talking about himself. Talking about his crucifixion. These same Jewish leaders are responsible for having Jesus crucified in just about three years from the time of this event that we're reading about today. And Jesus was telling them that even after they killed him, that he was coming back three days later, but they didn't get it. Worse yet, they had no interest in understanding, in dialoguing, in trying to figure out what he was saying because they were skeptics. They were ready, willing, and able to argue with anything Jesus said. Recently, I read a, an article, the New York Times called Elon Musk arguably the most successful and important entrepreneur in the world. And it's an easy case to make. He's probably the only person who has started four different billion-dollar-plus companies. PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX, SolarCity. And now he's the king of the Twitterverse, isn't he? But at his core, Musk is not a businessman or an entrepreneur. He's an engineer an inventor, or as he puts it, a technologist. And in a recent interview with Rolling Stone magazine, Elon Musk was asked these questions. From Rolling Stone magazine, it's interesting to me, listen to what they asked him. Mr. Musk, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? He answered, I try to let the weight of evidence determine my opinion. Do you have a spiritual practice? Not really. Not really, I believe in science. What do you think happens when you die? I think you cease to exist. I hope I'm wrong in a positive way, but most likely we're just gone. You see, friends, it's a sad thing when God confronts us, when he turns over the tables of our life, when he seeks to bring discipline and correction into our life, and all we do is respond with skepticism or sarcasm or negativity. 
the skeptic refuses to see the things that they're going through might just be the Lord trying to get their attention, turning over a table. Jesus keeps turning over the tables of sin and doubt in our lives. But if we're a skeptic, we refuse to see it. We just keep making empty excuses for our lifestyle. I hope I'm wrong in a positive way, but most likely you're just gone. Wow. What a sad commentary. You know, though skepticism is not new, it's not 21st century, it's been around a long time, hasn't it? In fact, it's been around since the beginning of time. Remember this encounter in Genesis chapter 3? Listen to these words. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Really? Really, Eve? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. Come on, Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, friends, today, the temptation to skepticism for God's children is perhaps more subtle, but it's just as real. When we say, well, I know what God's word says. I know what it says, but I just feel, I just feel this way. Oh, I, I read in the Bible, but that was a long time ago. This is the modern day. I, I hear what God is saying, but, but surely that's, that can't be what he means. You see, brothers and sisters, we can remember God's word and we can allow it to shape our emotions and our knowledge and our will or we can allow skepticism into our life and we can allow our emotions to guide us towards making arrogant demands of God and become more and more skeptical of his word and his plans and his purposes for our life. And this all leads then to the fourth response that we can make when discipline from the Lord enters our life. And that is that discipline can result in belief. Belief. The disciples saw how Jesus reacted to the, the sins of the money changers in the temple. They were witnesses to the arrogant demands of the religious leaders. They recognized the skepticism flowing from the educated elite of their culture. They saw it all, just as Jesus did. And then they had a choice to make. Now, because we already know the end of the story, we know that these disciples who were the first to witness a sign from Jesus at his world premiere, we know that these men chose to keep following Jesus. They kept following Jesus despite the demands, despite the doubt and the skepticism swirling about them, despite their own national leaders choosing a path away from Jesus, these disciples chose the path of belief. Belief. 
Belief. Belief is fueled by faith. And faith is always risky. But it is the path they chose. And for the next three years, this small but growing band of disciples learned and followed and did as their rabbi, their leader, their Lord did. And so we read in verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, what? Remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It was a light bulb moment. Oh, it all makes sense now. Everything that he said all the pieces of the puzzle are falling into place. It's coming into complete focus. They understood it all. And so, when we remember what Jesus has done, when we look back to the Gospels, to the record, the accurate, carefully protected record of Jesus, what is our response? What will it take for you and for me to respond in the right way when discipline comes our way? When we face trials, when we face a time when God is bringing discipline, how will we respond? The choice, you see, is up to us. The choice is ours. We can respond in doubt. We can respond with demands. We can respond with skepticism or we can choose the path of true belief. A belief that takes a step of faith sometimes into the unknown that says, God, I don't understand all of it, but I trust you. And so I'll go your way. And when we do that, that leads to life change. And that is the offer of the Lord. How will we respond? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word that is living, that is active, that helps us to see your purpose and your plan for our life. Father, we pray that you would help us to respond in ways that honor you. Father, we pray that we would respond with belief. And Father, we pray that when our belief is weak, that you would strengthen our belief. Like the man in the Gospels once said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, when the temptation for skepticism and doubt or rebellion and demands works its way into our hearts and our lives, Lord, may we stand strong remembering your plan and your purpose, and may our belief sustain us, our belief in your world view that is better than anything this world has to offer. Bless us this day, Father, in the name of Jesus who makes all this possible. Amen.